The history of the Catholic Church is more than just a series of names, dates, and places. It's the story of the people of God. It is our family history. What are the defining moments in that history? Join us as we discuss this and other questions with Dr. Glenn Olson, Professor of History at the University of Utah. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Talking about church history and its relevance to our lives today, we have a regular panelist with us, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology, and Dr. Scott Hahn, Professor of Biblical Theology, <clears throat> and a renowned historian that we've been following for years, Dr. Glenn Olson, Professor of History at the University of Utah, an author of such books as Beginning at Jerusalem, Five Reflections on the History of the Church, and Christian Marriage, a Historical Study, as well as I've seen his name on numerous articles. So let us start right with this idea of history. Uh, why is so little known about it, you know, particularly church history, and why do we have to reach back with such a, a kind of clawing nature to pull out what are the most relevant points and turning points? Well, I think if we were talking about specifically our country, that church history has really never been particularly studied mm -hmm. except by a few people or taught in the school systems. If, if you look at the pre-Vatican church, uh, the tendency t was to teach especially philosophy, say at the college That's level, right. and uh, that uh, had an obvious usefulness to it. But nevertheless, things like both church history and the, say the encyclical tradition um, weren't uh, taught in a general way, that is to most undergraduates, uh, v very well, I think. And so it's not that it's, there, it's a new thing, the, the, the not teaching of history. Um, it, it was always there in this country. And um, it, it would be different, I think, if we went and looked at, say, a, a Europe, European education, yes. uh, uh, up to Vatican II, that then it was, there were more, relatively speaking, more people that studied it. Um, in, a, in some sense, the country, in spite of all of its uh, be beliefs about itself as being chosen by God and so forth and having a special mission, um, has never been particularly good at teaching, I think, um, history, whether it's church history or, or other forms of history. So that, but it's, so that I mean, yeah. in a certain sense, we don't have a monumental past in the sense of a lot of really old buildings and so forth. And uh, in that sense, um, uh, dwells something in a historical vacuum. But there seems to be more importance being given to it more recently. It seems like there are more issues that relate to it and, and its knowledge. I, I think that's true. I, uh, if you just look at the amount of history selling so through history uh, book clubs and things like that, um, there is a clearly an interest, people wanting to know about it. The problem, from my point of view, is that it doesn't really have a place, a very large place, in the curriculum uh, at, at, at uh, any level. If you look at um, the grade schools in the last, say, 20 or 30 years, 
they more what, what history they had, which was a narrative history, they've sort of replaced by more and more of what I would call a kind of social studies approach, uh -huh. so that the students study world history, but they don't study any part of world history in a kind of a narrative form, and they're not expected to know a lot of factual material. And therefore, although they get a certain appreciation of various cultures, I don't think they actually get a lot to carry away. Um, and so they can't, uh, they, they can't rattle off uh, dates, and although that's certainly not the way, uh, the, the be-all and end-all of, of learning history, uh, if you still haven't learned a fair amount of factual material at a fairly young level, I think it's really hard to understand history at And, and Glenn, you, you, you've made the point uh, uh, throughout your career that the sense of life as a story mm -hmm. and having a narrative structure right, right. is really sort of indispensable if you want to understand the faith. It's to, the, to understand this, the faith and to have, I would say, a meaningful sense of your own identity. Right, yeah. In other words, we're, uh, you know, sort of pache a lot of liberal views. We are not people whose lives essentially are made through our own choices. Our lives right. are always made by the cultural context yeah. that yeah. we live in. That is, we are our families, we are our parents, right. uh, we yeah. are whatever tradition we were brought up in, whether religious or not. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, I, I see that a, a lot of that has not been communicated to yeah. individuals, and so they don't have a sense, that is even a good Catholic often doesn't have much of a sense of where they stand yeah. in history, right. um, yeah. what their heritage is, and therefore they have, in a certain sense, an unfocused sense of themselves. Right. And, and, and yeah. not, just, not just Catholics, but even just as Every, Americans. Everybody. You know, when you look at the multicultural approach to history, mm -hmm. it's so fragmentary, it's so, it's so segmented, it's, it, 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 it's lost that unitive story line, that narrative. You know, but you help me understand something too, because we are a young nation. Right. We don't have deep ethnic roots because we're a kind of melting pot. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you look at the Catholic institutions that were there before Vatican II, as you mentioned, there was a great emphasis upon philosophy, the perennial philosophy, mm -hmm. St. Thomas, a scholastic approach, which never really felt entirely comfortable with history to begin with, right, you know? Right. There wasn't a philosophy of history or a theology of history that sort of, you know, attempt to grasp the universals that give meaning to history. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult, that's, that's mm -hmm. dicey business. Mm -hmm. You know, so here we are, you know, I, I know late night television, <laughs> you can pick this up sometime when uh, you see Jay Leno interviewing people on the street. Right, you know, for right. them, Revolutionary War is ancient history. Right, you know, right, right, they can't right. even go that far back. That's, that, that's yeah. right. right. Yeah. And, and that, that really has a disastrous impact in terms of the appreciation of one's own distinctive religious heritage. Right, right. I mean, you put it in a really provocative way early on in your book. You say that, that, that core central truths of the faith have become increasingly unintelligible, right. not just because they belong to a time and place that is so distant from now, mm -hmm. but because they're also not detachable from that time and place. So to recover a sense of who we are, we need more than simply dogmatic uh, renewal or a moral reform. We need a recovery of certain habits of being, right. a way of seeing things. Right. Now, can, can you give me uh, some examples of that? Well, I've taken a sort of an obvious one, the doctrine of baptism. I mean, we come from an individualistic culture and it's actually increasingly more difficult to see, for instance, 
how a baby can be baptized. Yeah. And in other words, in the traditional culture, it was understood you were born into a community and that you had godparents and parents and a whole community that was responsible for completing your baptism as you grew up. Uh, and in a certain sense, both the family and the culture did that for you, and it didn't uh, cause any kind of psychological problems. Right. The whole idea right. of, of baptizing a baby, how could a baby choose right. to be a Christian? Yep. But now we live in a culture where we're told every day, uh, make your own life, choose your own thing, and so forth. And so we've reduced our sense of what it is to be a human being to both the individual level and a kind of enlightenment or rational sense of constantly making these choices. And you point out too that um, this isn't just true in the church with right. the sacraments it's, such it's as baptism. Everywhere. It's true in the natural order where right. the loss of the sense of family is pretty far developed. It's, right, it's right. pretty far down the road because you know here we are. There's a certain natural counterpart to baptism because we give our children their lives, their place, their names. You know, apart from their own individualistic experiential choices, mm -hmm. they are who they are in this relational network that they're born into. But we're not comfortable with that. You know, we we want to emphasize blended families. We want to kind of emphasize how fluid family has to be in order for individual freedom to flower. And, and, and that's, I think, the real source of psychological instability yeah. and chaos. And it's a kind of a misleading idea, uh, too, because, in fact, you're always picking up your identity from your culture. And in a certain sense, what we're saying is that the culture has become dysfunctional. Right. Uh, and it doesn't have a particular pattern to it. So you pick up a little bit from this source and a little yeah. bit from that source. And if you don't yourself have a keen sense of the history behind each of those choices, you, bec you become yourself sort of decentered. Uh, yeah. I think you can make a, a, John Lukash has made the argument that we're actually well into return to the state of being an oral culture. Yeah. In other words, the tremendous decline in the vocabulary, uh, the, the number of words that people yeah. know right. in just the last decade, the increasing not reading of the daily paper. Many of us know, I suspect right. even here, you have students yeah. sure. who don't read the daily newspaper right. and are every day less and less informed, not just about things Catholic, but about the world. And uh, as we go into that period, uh, more and more, can, they will not be defined by anything that they've consciously learned or consciously read, but by this kind of dysfunctional yeah. culture around them. So in a way, we're returning to a kind of pre-medieval world. Well, to a medieval world, actually, to a, to a pre-Gutenberg world. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you morality. You, you make the point, no. which is, I, I think, quite haunting, that uh, what does a world overrun with barbarians where illiteracy is increasing and, mm -hmm. and people don't know who they are? What, what does that kind of world have to do with us? Mm -hmm. uh, and then the question freezes, you say, in our throats because that is an uncanny description of the world that we occupy right, right, right now, right, mass right. man. Right. You know, but you're, you're pointing out something too that, uh, that, that the idea of narrative story, this is what history makes history more than just memorizing facts. It's also what makes family more mm -hmm. than just sharing the same genes right, right. and postal address. You know, right, right. Uh, a family is defined by the generations that precede it and how much truer that is for us as Catholics who are part of this universal family. And, and, and not only to understand the saints, and the struggles down through the ages, but to even understand basic doctrine. Regis, you, you brought out that point that he makes in, 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 in uh, beginning at Jerusalem, and it really struck me. It wasn't the first time, though, about oh, five years ago, I was reading a book 
by Tom Hibbs on dialectic and narrative in Aquinas. Mm -hmm. and, and what he was showing me was that for Aquinas, the, the whole of Scripture gives us this theology of history that, that God is fathering us as His family. Yeah. This divine economy of salvation has to be grasped internally. It has to be meditated upon. But it didn't stop with the death of the last apostle. Right. What Hibbs shows me is that when Thomas is developing this, uh, this exposition of doctrine in the Summa Contra Gentilis, he sees a, almost a providential pattern. You know, the right heresies came along at the right time and led us to the next insight, you know. And so suddenly, the narrative flow of church history becomes illuminating mm -hmm. so that the, the mystery of Christ gradually unfolds through the ages precisely because of the struggles that God allowed but to you, rise you, up, you know. You seem to be erecting a, a complete revolution in the way people are thinking and learning. You know, uh, we did a program on Pius XII and, they, and the Jews, and no matter how we tried to handle the issue, there was a lack of, well, what had Pius XII done all the time before that issue and through <laughs> and the rest, and you couldn't get it in, uh, embrace it without a, this sense of developing history. Mm -hmm, right. And so we're talking not just about putting a new course in a curriculum or new study areas. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a way of approaching reality. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I think it's particularly the layman's way. I mean, everybody has to know this, but the layman who lives every day in the world, it seems to me, especially has to have uh, a, a historical sense. Um, I know that there are various theological meanings given to the notion of the people of God in the documents of Vatican II, but I kind of like a straightforward reading of that where, in, in which you understand that you are a part of this community stretched over time and that, again, you, don't, you can't locate yourself in the present. It's sort of the, the, the people of God notion is a, is a kind of a road map to helping you uh, understand where you are in the present moment. Yeah. But I, I would say that the people of God as a model for understanding the church has been hijacked or co-opted right. by many different groups right. because I think, you know, you can't really do without a narrative. You know, Robert Jensen mentions this in an article he wrote, How the World Lost Its Story, that to answer the question, why am I here, you have to answer the other question of what story is my life a part of, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look at our our own self-identity as American Catholics, I am convinced that there is a kind of uh, alternative narrative that has supplanted the true one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is that, that history is about this progress toward democracy. And democracy in its bipartisan form. Mm -hmm. So you have liberals and Democrats, you know, liberals and conservatives squaring off and you know, somehow the common good will emerge and all we do is apply that to the church and then the people of God becomes a kind of ecclesial democracy so that we have liberals and conservatives and this is the way it ought to be. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think we think that way without even thinking about it. No, that, that's because cool. this is really the story that has supplanted God's, you know, God's plan yeah. for us. Yeah, I mean, my way of putting that would be that American Catholic history has typically been written as the history of assimilation. In other words, the bottom line has been uh, being accepted by the culture, becoming yeah. a part of the culture. And I would say the, that the people over the last the couple of centuries of, of American Catholic history that have seen all of the problems with adjusting to the larger culture have been given really kind of uh, short shrift. Yeah. And so, that the so-called, so what we would today call evangelical Catholics, 
uh, could be understood as a kind of protest against right. assimilation or a protest against an uncritical assimilation or yes, something right. like that. And I don't think those people have counted as right. much right. so that yep. you end up with getting things like John Kennedy as the high point right. of American right. Catholic history because he became president. Yep. But at what cost did yep. he become and, and president? Okay, but what we're going to oh, do, okay. <laughs> we, we've got a lot to do today, Regis. So we've got to uh, not just go back to John Kennedy or George Washington, not just talk hundreds of years, but thousands yep. and talk what's the relevance, how, why do we need to know the ancient history, the medieval history, how does this all inform us to be ready to understand today's events or even George Washington's events? Stay with us. Three of my brothers and sisters went here and now I've just really fallen in love with the place. The campus life is amazing. The liturgies, the music, the friars, they all show me so much about my Catholic faith. Becoming a nurse is the hardest thing that I've ever done, but I'm learning to care for people, their bodies and their souls. And that's what really drew me into nursing. I truly believe that this place is forming me into the woman that God wants me to be. I'm Mary Adams, and that's my Franciscan story. continue talking about church history with Dr. Glenn Olson here, and we're go going back deeper into earlier history and how important it is to know it and, and have an historical mind. Uh, how about the, the early Christians, and uh, how historical were they, and how important is it for us to think the way they thought in that time? Well, honestly, I think in the ancient church, the yeah. kind of things that we're talking about were mostly car uh, carried by bishops. Uh, in other words, probably most, if we're talking about, say, the first six centuries or so, that most Christians couldn't read and write in the first six centuries. Yes. And books were, uh, or manuscripts were extremely uh, uh, precious, so you could, very few people could have uh, any book at home. Um, so in terms of the actual knowledge of history, it was just that you expected your bishops to be very learned and them to, to uh, guide people. I don't think that with, for the average person that they had uh, studied, so to speak, to get this kind of knowledge. If they had been attentive, if they were lucky to have a bishop like Augustine, they had gotten this from, from the pastoral care, but not from study. Oh, this may be somewhat self-reflective, but what about the priest? <laughs> uh, you know, right. you're, you're saying the bishops, but there was right. a problem. And the, the, well, uh, yeah. again, up to maybe the fourth century or so, yeah. uh, you have a fair number of learned priests. Um, the priests are really quite varied over time, and they're all centuries. Um, as we get into, into, say, the 5th or the 6th century, you, in fact, are finding more and more priests who basically don't know what they're talking about. Uh -huh. um, 
remember there's no seminary system until Trent. And so the way that a person would become a priest is sort of like becoming an apprentice. You would go, a young boy would go and live with another priest and how much he knows is going to depend very much uh, upon what the priest knows, uh, not, not any system of education. When we get down to say Bede in the 8th century, he tells us that although you've got a lot of good bishops traveling around England, they are appalled at the level of knowledge of some of the priests that they meet. Um, they don't know how to say the creed in Latin, they can't say the Our Father in Latin, and so forth. So, uh, actually, the, at the, the everyday levels, there's a, the, a great variety of, of, of level of knowledge. Um, the notion of actually teaching history is, is basically an 18th century notion and, and following. It's a fairly recent 18th one. 18th century. So, so most goodness. people got their sense of history, I say, through kind of more custom and, and family and so forth. And, um, the, the elders of the village or something like but that. But what, what do you see in something like the City of God and mm -hmm. Augustine or Otto of Friesing and, and at Hugh of St. Victor, it seems as though there was an undercurrent throughout these ages, uh, especially beginning with Augustine, where there is a sense of uh, the unity of history. Oh, that's clearly so, but I say if we're talking about society as a whole, that's a really a very small number of people. And even the priests weren't uh, trained to read that kind of thing. I think uh, that if you, say, took a, the average 7th century priest, he could not give you an intelligible uh, account of the argument in the city of God. Yeah. In other words, it really would be a hundred people in Europe oh, or, right. or something yeah. like that that could actually do that. And you can see when you get down to the learned uh, people of the Carolingian period of the 8th and the 9th century that they almost have to rediscover Augustine for themselves in terms of the kinds of themes that we're talking about. So, I mean, you can't stress that the church has passed through some very difficult times and rather long times yep. Um, in, in which it was really a, a, an elite, a small elite, who carried uh, the essential message. And in, say, 7th or 8th century, it would be mostly monks in monasteries and, uh, uh, you know, a percentage of the bishops and, and a smaller percentage of the priests. Now, now would, you, would you argue that this is not wholly uh, 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 something to deplore? It's not entirely a catastrophe? Because while they may not be self-reflective, they're living of the story. Right. The liturgy it, it, conveys this. It, it's sort of like the, the up and the down points of, uh, say, uh, yeah. Irish villages of the uh -huh. 19th century, say. Yeah. In other words, you've got one man in the village who is generally really respected and also has a lot of control over uh -huh. the village, and that's the priest. And they get yeah. most of their information uh, about these kinds of issues from the priest. And so, for good or ill, they depend upon the priest. and. Yeah. The, the priest may be a very good pastor or, or something, but he might be the, the Irish equivalent of a Jansenist and, oh. and, 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 and give the wrong kind of grim Christianity right. uh, yeah. to his people. So yeah. in these kinds of periods, um, a great deal does depend upon the face-to-face -face contact yeah. and it can vary, people's knowledge or grasp of things can vary uh, every 20 or 30 miles. I see. How do you, we hear about the Dark Ages. Right. It sounds like uh, what's particularly distinctive of the Dark Ages if you have such a low level of literacy? Right. Well, um, sort of coming back to one of the themes of the book, most of these people within a relatively recent period, a few generations, were pagans. Mm. 
okay, so that the whole family has converted to Christianity uh, not, not too far in the distance. And I think for many people, this just opened primarily through the liturgy, not through reading wow. and the other kinds of things, yeah. a whole new world. I mean, we've got quite a few people who talk about, who do learn Latin, and then talk about the impact that the liturgy makes on them. And I think that much of uh, what Christianity is was conveyed by them getting into a church and then seeing the Christian liturgy, participating in the Christian yep. liturgy, and so forth. And that must have given a sense that uh, not only we stand in the developing history of Christianity, but uh, a whole sense of a cosmos that they hadn't expected. In other words, they had been living in a kind of a, a Germanic cosmos, uh, and suddenly they have this no, uh, the notion of God the Creator, and that actually in the Eucharist that God was just uh, in His Son Christ was not just somebody in the past, but somebody who is with us right now. And that must have, in a certain sense, been mind-boggling. Mm. Um, the, the, and so I, I would say that the liturgy, now you've got to understand that the liturgy was also not, uh, often uh, practiced poorly. Um, yep. But that nevertheless, for many people, that must have been the most important way yep. that they uh, sort of tied in to the whole Christian tradition. You know, we as Catholics emphasize the importance of living tradition, but we often mistake living tradition with something archaic uh -huh. you know, or arcane. Mm. The tradition is alive, most especially in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I discovered this while I was still a Protestant reading the works of this Jesuit Walter Ong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Ong did a yes. fabulous job opening my eyes to the oral roots of, of civilization, everywhere you really turn in history until, you know, Gutenberg, but how the liturgy is this full expression of orality, of right. not just of, of speaking, but of, of hearing, of smelling, of all of the senses. So much truth is conveyed. We tend to think in this literary age that religion is primarily a set of beliefs you either subscribe to or don't, whereas, you know, f for, for centuries, and really today still, whether we know it or not, the Catholic religion is not primarily a set of propositions you right. adhere to, but it is a liturgy that you live. Yeah, a way of life. Especially yeah. the Mass, but you know, yeah. the, the liturgy of the hours, the, the other sacraments, baptism, matrimony, and then just the life of prayer that you have as a family, you know, in a domestic liturgy. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a crucial point, and I think you bring it out so well, Glenn, in your book, you know, that, that the doxological, character of liturgy is something that we've sort of lost sight of. It, it's primarily worship, adoration, celebration. It's something to be performed. Uh, it's an ambiance, a cosmos. Mm -hmm. and, and the medievals understood that or intuited it. it it's not primarily didactic, uh, but something you see, it's a drama, a show, uh, it's gesture. Uh, how do we recover that? Well, yeah. uh, I think that, I, again, in, in the book, I actually mentioned my own parish, um, that it can be done today, and it sort of depends upon a pastor wanting to spend a good deal of time yeah. working on these things and having some faith uh, lay laymen that are willing to help them. But in my parish, um, the uh, hours of the church are said publicly. Uh, we have a wonderful, we actually have a choir school of, uh, to teach the students, I mean, it's a full-time school, so it's where they yeah. get their education through grade eight, to uh, intelligently perform 
uh, the liturgy and we get a lot of them that are slowly becoming church musicians and so forth. And you do concrete things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, and uh, we have a pastor, we, uh, we had a pastor recently who emphasized that this kind of uh, uh, liturgy, which some people would identify as elite because it's, uh, it's uh, actually not so much in Latin, it's always in the language of, uh, that it was written in. So our liturgy is in Latin, Italian, French, German, <laughs> it matters right. you know, yeah. uh, who we're using oh, yeah. and so forth. Uh, that there is a danger that this becomes an elite uh, uh, experience in which you yes. go there more like going to a concert or something. Yeah. And our pastor insists that we try to do everything well. And so beside that, we have a very extensive uh, food program, daily food oh, program uh, in the parish. And we have, in other words, we try to make sure that all levels of society feel welcome in the church yeah. and that we're dealing with them. So. Uh, I mean, I'm, I suppose in most older cities these days, cathedrals are multi-ethnic, but right, one yep. is sort of struck if you, in, in my parish that there are people from every economic level, there are people from many historical ethnic backgrounds, and they feel comfortable um, with this with a uh, fairly grand liturgy. Um, then we, what we have done is um, to uh, uh, Richard Prue uh, in Chicago was brought in, to try to figure out how to do a solemn liturgy for rural or small parishes. Uh -huh. And we've been working on that because obviously a small parish is not going to have a number of wonderful singers and right. so forth. Yeah. And it's more that they learn how to, how to sing the chant or something like this. And um, you know, there I would have to say that that's fairly recent and, and, and the yeah. results aren't in. But it right. seems to me that that's what has to be done. And I'm really pleased that slowly we have um, important churchmen visiting the church yeah. and observing things and well, it, bishops it, it, coming in. It strikes in. me as just astonishing that you'd be able to produce this oasis in a place like Salt Lake City, right, right. this Mormon well, bastion. Right, it, it, might be, uh, it, it might be actually a good place to do it <laughs> yes, because yeah. it's sort of the alternative. Yes, it's less toxic. Uh, but, um, yeah. but this, you know, so far we've had to primarily uh, sort of uh, communicate, participate with a number of high church Anglican parishes across the country. Yep. But now there are Catholics, uh, Catholic bishops elsewhere thinking about yep. do we yep. need a choir school and that kind right. of question. Well, and I think that's what has to be well, done. Well, this is exactly what the Holy Father, I, I think, right. is anxious to promote. The church becomes, as you put it, forma mundi. It's the form of the world. It's right. a matrix in right. which people develop their identity. Right. I discover who I am in my parish. Right. It's this a culture. Us, this gets us back to what you were saying at the uh, end of the previous installment, too, that, that so often Catholics in America are practicing a form of assimilation. We're uh -huh. becoming more American right. and less Catholic, and yet the Pope is calling for the enculturation of the gospel values. Right, right. And in some ways, I think Salt Lake City might be a laboratory because Mormon culture is in so many ways steeped in temple ritual. Mm -hmm. And so it's an alternative to that, but it's also an alternative set up in a place where the plausibility structures, you know, religion right. is believable in a public right, way. Right, well, it's right. also family friendly, right. Right, right? There's right, a certain so. moral wholesomeness right, right. Uh, to this way of life. Still, Salt Lake City is a surprising <laughs> place for the so cathedral. This is quite a jump, <laughs> you know, uh, talking to uh, our viewers thinking of what mass was like this morning or yesterday, right. and now even 
raising this possibility. So when we come back, we want to link this as best we can. Not everybody can jump into having the mass in five different languages right, right. and expect anything less than a bit of chaos. But uh, what else? How do we put it together, assimilate our history, and really be faithful to it and celebrate according to the mind of the Lord? Stay with us. Living amidst the natural beauty of the Austrian Alps, studying in a beautifully restored medieval monastery, traveling to Rome, Assisi, Budapest, and beyond, exploring the cultural and historical roots of Christianity, making friends from many nations. Sound interesting? Ask us about Franciscan University of Steubenville's Austrian Study Abroad Program, 800-783-6220 or franciscan.edu. We're here at Franciscan University talking about the developments of customs and doctrines and the whole understanding of church history and its importance with our regular pa panelists as well as our historian of great note, Dr. Glenn Olson. And um, you really kind of pushed something in front of us in the last segment in, in terms of how there could be a much different development in, in the school teaching as well as in the liturgical practices that would uh, reflect the history of the church and reflect the different traditions. Um, how, where else do we draw this from, from our medieval church and from others? Uh, what kind of sources do people use if they want to respond to what you uh, expressed in your pa uh, own parish and uh, uh, how can they develop in this kind of way, would you say? Um, probably it's not best uh, to go back to the primary sources first. Yes. Um, I think a person has to have some kind of an interpretive uh, framework to work with before you do that. And so I would say one of the uh, uh, sort of person picks the period and then one of the recent uh, books that are worth reading about it, um, I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, Brad Gregory's Salvation at Stake. He is a uh, basically a Reformation historian, and uh, he was at Stanford, recently moved to Notre Dame, and uh, in that book he just gives a very different 16th century than has traditionally been presented. Um, generally, uh, uh, there's been an implicit apologetic goal in uh, whatever side uh, one was writing from in doing 16th century history very frequently. And that was really to try to show 
what in that period uh, anticipated good things today. Uh -huh. a, a lot of historians do that. That is, whatever period they're studying, um, they want to ignore what moderns might be uneasy with in their period and, and sort of yeah. praise the good things. And so Luther has been made into, for instance, a defender of religious freedom or something like that. Now, the, the notion of religious freedom, as say it would be understood by many people today, is almost absent from the 16th century. And the, 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 what Brad Gregory shows is that many people felt a duty to be intolerant. Yeah. And he has these stunning chapters That's on both the will to kill and the will to be killed, or the oh. acceptingness of martyrdom. Right. And I think to read a book coming like that, coming out of our culture, sort of sets you back on your heels right. and, and asks, you know, have I really understood this at all? And then having read something like that, um, one can slowly work into the great writers of the 16th century. I mean, the, the, besides the great spiritual writers, especially of the second half of the 16th century, uh, there are, uh, if, if a person is, has the taste for philosophy and theology, can eventually get into the, I mean, really wonderful Spanish theologians of this period. Uh, and Italian theologians and so forth. That's sort of the, the aim. That, I would say at that point you go to the original sources, but you probably are best advised, um, just partly because of oh, the nature of like our educational it. system, yeah, sure to, like to go into it, uh, a good secondary work first. Yeah. Now to move to the, the level of the lay pedestrian. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I, I think that there are sources that are even more accessible. You know, the one that you point out in your book is scripture itself. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the mass is the only thing that every Catholic is obligated to attend and the Bible is the only thing that has to be read. But the, the, the catechism you also draw from a great deal. And mm -hmm. I have not found a more useful tool, tool uh, for helping just ordinary Catholics to feel comfortable in going back to Scripture, reading it, mm -hmm. assimilating it, not only doctrinally but spiritually for prayer and that sort of thing. But there's also a third source along with Scripture and the catechism and that would be the lectionary itself. Mm -hmm. The way that the church combines the readings of the Old and New Testament typologically, especially in the Sunday readings, I find that ordinary Catholics who would read your book, Beginning at Jerusalem, or just you know, assimilate this, this mindset mm -hmm. of the church through the ages, would be empowered, would be enabled to draw so much more out of the Mass, especially in the Liturgy of the Word, mm -hmm. just by listening attentively to how Christ is fulfilling the Word of God, even now, you know, through the Eucharist especially. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, uh, we have l largely lost the notion of the communion of saints, and that we are a part of a great uh, witness. And um, I think that, yes, you're certainly right, that it's especially the liturgy in its da daily application is one of the best ways of entering into this larger world. And then, you know, sort of one can find one's favorite saints with time, in other right. words, yeah. and then go read their writings and so forth. Right. Uh, yeah. so, yes. What about also the Reformation or the Protestant Revolution? Uh -huh. That's something that uh, is still mysterious to most Catholics, mm -hmm. uh, maybe to Protestants too, mm -hmm. as to exactly what the forces were. And I think you, you present uh, historical movements that were coming to term there. Mm -hmm. Uh, how would that make a difference today? Well, I would say that from uh, that always, really, yeah. uh, you could go into the ancient world. Sure. But I, for our purposes, I'll say deep in the uh, Middle Ages that uh, there was a certain attachment to, of categories of power to monarchies. 
and categories of priests to priests and uh, uh, monks, and that these two cultures, the culture of power and the culture of peace, struggled with one another century after century, and we get that expressed then is in especially what we would call eventually church-state conflicts, uh -huh. and that the Reformation really comes out of that battle between uh, the attempt of monarchs to simply completely control a territory and so forth, including the church. That is, the traditional monarch, and it doesn't matter if we're pagan or Christian, mm -hmm. uh, is a kind of theocrat. I mean, we can go way back to the pharaohs and the, and the rulers are presented. That's very important. Let's underline that, a theocrat. Right. Meaning that he was taking full authority over he, the religion. He, he presented himself yes. either as God in say in the yeah. pagan form of the of the Pharaoh or as God's primary agent. And yeah. the way that that was expressed for a long time in the Middle Ages, Charlemagne would be an example of that, is that the, the king controls the church. In other words, the church yeah. is almost like a department of yeah. state or something right. like that. And century after century, as the nation state becomes stronger, it doesn't give up that aspiration. So one way to see, say, Henry VIII yeah. or somebody is somebody who is not going to let the church call the tune. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And he's going to control them. And there's something like that all across Europe. Um, I think that Luther is, uh, in his own mind, a genuine reformer in the sense of pointing out things that are wrong with the Catholic Church and of yeah. wanting a different way. But Luther would have been one of just a hundred or two hundred similar people uh, that in the Middle Ages that had never broken with the Church had not he been able to persuade the German princes yeah. uh, to back him up. And that makes all the difference. Basically, the Reformation succeeded where somebody could find a secular power to back it, and it failed where somebody, they couldn't find a secular power. There's, there's another ingredient, I think, that comes alongside of Luther that isn't noticed as much by those in church history, and that is Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. You know, because King Henry VIII was the defender of the faith, and really a little intrusive even before he mm -hmm. declared himself to be the head of the church in England and, and went Protestant. Uh, Cardinal Pole, in his letters, you know, actually dates the break to the time that Henry received from Cromwell this copy of The Prince by Machiavelli, mm -hmm. that this was sort of a license to kill, mm -hmm. and not just to wow. kill, but to sack monasteries and to desecrate shrines, and to do whatever it took to advance the arcana imperii, the, the, the secrets of state, mm -hmm. you know, that now the mystery is really a political issue of power. Mm -hmm. It isn't a sacramental one any longer. And uh, it's a short line, I think, from, from Machiavelli to Hobbes and Leviathan. This, this nation state that swallows religion and privatizes that sort of thing. I, I, I think we forget how much the, the politicians were theologians. When I was reading Machiavelli recently and, and Hobbes, you know, over half of Leviathan by Hobbes, you know, this political philosopher, is biblical exegesis mm -hmm. and Spinoza too. They were really out to kind of supplant or co-opt the biblical texts from the from the church so that, you know, instead of revelation, we would have reason. Instead of theology, philosophy. Instead of the church, we would have the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, Luther, I think, in some ways was sort of a, a sincere but unwitting collaborator in that sort of thing that was going on That's around. It's extraordinary well, I, I think, when you think all those elements were involved and you hear the arguments today as if it was 
you know, a simple theological mm -hmm, dispute mm -hmm. or, uh, about, okay, go ahead. I, mean, I think there's a kind of conspiracy going on here, but it's unwitting. That's I mean, right. You have Machiavelli in politics, you have Luther in religion, you have Descartes in philosophy, and together they sort of produce the modern age. Uh, and, with, and since we're talking about Machiavelli, we see this, this terribly cynical uh, exploitation of power no longer for uh, providence to harness power and politics in order to advance the kingdom of God, but to sort of heap up my own uh, temporal goods uh, and to uh, stick it to those who, who dare to uh, undermine my authority. I mean, Henry is just an insufferable uh, uh, man whose appetites are, are boundless. In a medieval world, he would be checked, I, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't he? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I basically agree with the, dr the, dr the drift of things, <laughs> yes. but I would emphasize that long before Machiavelli, uh, oh. medieval kings were duplicitous yep, yep. also. Nice. That is, uh, um, St. Louis is, is sort of an exception in oh, his moral yep. formation. Yep. So I, I would want to emphasize that more and more the, the conflict at one level is about the very notion of universality or Christendom yep. versus the notion of particularity or nationality. Yep. And that what, what happens in the Reformation, at least one important dimension of it, is the inability of the church to be Christendom in right. these areas yep. any longer. Yep. And, you know, we have some people like Henry who can use their Machiavelli and actually quite a few who never heard of the man right. yeah. uh, and so forth. But they're all doing roughly the same thing and that is they cannot restrain themselves in their appetite right. for the increasing power of the state. Yeah, yeah I see. But, but, I mean, something happens also to the papacy. I mean, with, with the Gregorian reform mm -hmm. of the Middle Ages, you, you've got genuine uh, efforts uh, made to check and restrict this, uh, this unbridled exercise of secular power. Right. I mean, from the 11th century especially, you, ha you have the Gregorian reform precisely trying to limit this. And um, then something happens, uh, you know, yeah. Stalin's phrase about how many right, uh, legions the Pope has. Yeah. I mean, always, uh, I mean, from the 11th century, what the issues are are fairly clear for any yeah. half-educated yeah. person. But the problem is that the church is much, much larger, right. but also much weaker and much yeah. more uh, has a much lim more limited government compared to these, uh, right. say, yeah. at least this England and France and Spain, yeah. these ri rising national states. So yeah. in a certain power competition, it's uh -huh. very difficult for yeah. the church to, uh, yeah. to keep up with, uh, with these things. And I mean, one of the great problems or just to, to think about is whether there ever is a mechanism yeah. to limit what you might call the, the hubris of the state. Yeah. Um, here, I, I don't mean that there haven't been bad popes who also right, misused right. their power, yeah. but it was always not much of a match in a power yeah. in a power struggle. Right. And, yeah. and um, there's other important factors: the growing commercialization of society. Um, it's it's one thing to be otherworldly in the early Middle Ages, where when there aren't that many options. Right. <laughs> but right. as your economy is growing, especially in say Italy uh, from the 12th century on there is also an increasing temptation to almost any kind of a layman to spend their lives money-making. Right. And it's yeah. just as it's hard for a king to limit his hubris, it's really difficult 
for a layman to limit their appetite. And so you the know, church praises, preaches against all of this stuff, but right. it's, it has a limited success. Yeah, I mean, you, you see in Chaucer uh, this, this, the, the strictures against uh, cupidity. I mean, mammon is really the heart of the problem, mm -hmm. uh, more so even than, than pride, lust of riches. Mm -hmm. It can seem a little overwhelming, but when we come back, <laughs> the panel is going to tell you what you can do next or take away from this kind of discussion, which has pushed back the borders on so many issues. So stay with us. the heart of the church, ex corde ecclesiae. That is where the Holy Father is calling Catholic universities to be. And that is where you'll always find Franciscan University of Steubenville. The church's lifeblood flows through our campus, from the classrooms to the playing fields and in our residence halls. This immersion in faith and reason equips our students to be the next generation of Catholic leaders. Its foundation is here at the heart of the church. Well, we've come to the last segment in this rather challenging program of the developments in church doctrine and customs, the importance of church history, all the things that are gaps in our lives uh, individually and corporately uh, as a community, a, a family, the people of God who hand things down to one another. We can forget and have so many gaps. So we're going to ask each panelist to... Um, Help us with yeah. this progress forward, Regis. Yeah, I mean, you ended by asking, where do we go from here? Yeah. And uh, as a practical matter, I think one place we can go is to Glenn's book, yes. which I, I think is uh, it's a, a, an exquisite uh, example of Catholic scholarship, and it's really quite moving. Uh, and you've got everything in it, including the Baroque, which we haven't spoken much uh, uh, about. Uh, and maybe I should end on that theme, because in some ways, I'm a child of the Baroque, uh, the Counter-Reformation Church, and the years I spent in Rome were steeped. You steep have to explain that a little in, further, in a or else we'll ambiance. think you're hanging from a... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, by Baroque, our, mean? our old friend Fritz Wilhelmsen uh, used to yes. describe the Baroque as not a symbol of anything, but a kind of explosion a lyric explosion of reality. And you make the point, I, I think, with great learning uh, and eloquence, that the Baroque represents an attempt to fill every available space uh, with the presence of God. Uh. And, and it's, it's inspired by this Ignatian idea that God is in everything and everything we do should somehow serve His honor and glory. The Baroque is an expression of that. It refuses to uh, uh, reconcile the culture to a privatized religion. Every space belongs to God. 
God having consecrated uh, this uh, material world. And, and so we return it to him uh, in, in, uh, in worship. And the broke, I think, makes it easier for men to be good. Uh, and and it, it allows people to profess their loyalty to the church, to Christendom, and not to be beguiled or seduced by the nation state. We need to recover that, I think. Recover Baroque. Okay, I bet you'd start in a different place for Well, I'm going to resist the temptation <laughs> to, uh, to give a three-minute infomercial on the book. Uh, that would mortify our guest here. But let me just say, read Beginning at Jerusalem. And if it's hard the first time, go through it a second time, because I find it to be a, a very helpful set of essays that put things in perspective. You know, to paraphrase Newman, to go deep into history is to cease to be Protestant. That's really what helped me to become Catholic. And from what you have said during the breaks, I, I think a similar experience we share here there. But uh, you know, after the fifth century, I just assumed for so many years that Christianity went into darkness and fell into kind of non-practicing advance or, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until Luther and the Reformation and that sort of thing. But then to discover that, that, that the Holy Spirit was quite present and active in different ways, uh, sometimes modest and inconspicuous, other times more, much more, uh, public and, and, and evident, but to discover that history and to see it as our own family story, that these are brothers and sisters in Christ, as Newman once said, that everybody who ever lived still does somewhere, mm -hmm. and that the ones who still live in glory are with us, whether we see them or not, in the liturgy. And the liturgy, I think, is what carries the story along. It carries us along and makes us a part of it. And this is what your book does for me. It just enlivens that sense that the biblical account of salvation history didn't end in the first century or in the fifth, you know, and it didn't resume in the 16th century with Luther and Calvin. It is something that is always fraught with, you know, ups and downs and ambiguities, just as in our own age and in my own life. But to, to, to capture this historical imagination and then to elevate it through the sacraments and the liturgy and a, a study of church history as God's universal family, I really thank you for putting pen to paper and putting these essays out. I thank you. Thank you. Well, Glenn, you, now you've g had experience. What do you tell viewers as to where they can start or launch into this uh, richness? That obviously depends upon their particular talent. Uh, I've already given the example of what could be done with music and used my own uh, parish yes. to, to illustrate that. Um, think about the spiritual life. Uh, again, I'll be very sort of confessional here. When I came to Utah, um, it was hard to find. I, I have a devotion to St. Ignatius and uh, uh, the uh, spiritual exercises, and it was f hard to find anyone. This sort of uh, ties in with your uh, praise of the Baroque. Uh, to give a, a proper Ignatian uh, retreat yes. and so forth. And um, I'd only been there a year or so, and, and I discovered there were other people feeling the same lack. And so we chipped our money together and actually brought in a priest from France uh, to do this, but it was a room full of people. But he only had brought in his French edition of the exercises, yes. assuming that he could just go to any priest in Utah and get a copy of the spiritual exercises. And, had, and it called finally in a panic. The cathedral called in a panic. Do you have a copy of the spiritual exercises? Because he's not been able to find one in any parish wow. and so forth. 
Uh, and it, so we worked then to get that as a presence and so forth. And now there, there, now one of the nuns actually is giving us the spiritual exercises. Yes. Um, and uh, there is a certain devotion to that. Well, a person can take that as their particular mission um, to make sure that that is present. Um, the, uh, in terms of, we all need this continuing self-education in terms of what we've been talking about, the knowledge of the church. Um, people often say, well, what should I read? Or something like that. Well, why not start, uh, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to start with the catechism, but if you want to get a narrative history or something like that, why not start with the penguin history of the church? It's, each volume is cheap, it's, it's reliable. And by the time you've read the five volumes, you have a pretty good idea of the history of the church. And it seems to me that what we need to do is those kinds of concrete um, things. In, in the choir school I was talking about, um, the people who are good with languages, we've, we've actually it's, we make it a requirement that every student have both Latin and Spanish. Latin for the obvious right. reason and Spanish because of where we are. Yeah. Uh, and you can do things like that. Um, even now in the Catholic schools, um, there are some courses you can get in the theology departments that are good church history courses. In other words, they're, um, the, the people now have begun to take these things seriously. And it seems to me the average person has to find a particular battle uh, to fight and uh, a, a little place to make the world a little lighter here, uh, a, 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 a place of, of greater light, and uh, that things like that are what should be done. All right. Well, the book is Beginning at Jerusalem, Five Reflections on the History of the Church. Uh, it's Ignatius Press and by, of course, Dr. Glenn Olson here. We have for you, just for asking or writing us, uh, a handout, his story, an interview with Dr. Glenn Olson, which by now you should be in tranced with his <laughs> uniqueness and uh, of someone who can so plunge into history. What can I tell you? Very little. But develop your historical hunger. Hunger to know more. Hunger to be there. I have a simple one. When I celebrate saints, I read about the historical environment they're in and try and link it to the development of the church. But that's all we have for now, so till next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you, show his face to you and have mercy on you, turn his countenance and give you his peace. Amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a videotape of this show, call toll-free 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or you may call 740 283-6357 or write to Franciscan University Presents Care of Television Productions Franciscan University of Steubenville 1235 University Boulevard Steubenville, Ohio 43952